one of my favorite people and investigators and researchers, Paula Harris, is here with me right now. And we're going to be talking about a couple of cases that I find particularly poignant and profound. And one I have spoken of before uh, on Gaia TV in my interview with Glenn Steckling, and it has to do with the Adamski case. And we're going to be talking about a new look at the Adamski case, because it's going to lead into another case that I think you're going to find absolutely beautiful and profound by a person we've heard very little of. So without further ado, we're going to go to Paula. And Paula, we're going to be talking first about George Adamski and the new book by me. Michelle Zerger, having to do with the authentication of his case in the desert in November of 1952. And before we get going, Paula, tell us why 1952 was such a big time and the events on earth that were leading up to this contact of Adamski's. Well, the whole 1950s for me is fascinating. And I call it back to the future because what happens is that we have to look at the contactees of the 1950s to understand what the messages from the cosmos were. And what happened was the the obvious 1945 July, when we exploded the atomic bomb, we had several crashes in the New Mexico area. And what happened is we caught the attention of cosmic cultures. And when cosmic cultures we catch their attention. They send their people. And I've got to stress this because we didn't have, even in the literature, anything about little gray aliens until Betty and Barney Hill in the 60s. We only had space brothers and space sisters. So when you had these huge conferences in Giant Rock, in the 50s and 60s, they only talked about people from space. They never mentioned abductions or little gray aliens or anything like that. So you have to go back to the beginning. And for me, November 20th uh, of 1952, uh, and it, when Adamski had his contact with Orthon, and this this. Stuff all happened in Southern California. It did. I, I want to just add it. I think it was November 1st and 16th. We'd just done nuclear tests in the desert. And to give an idea, one of the bombs, one of the atomic bombs was a thousand times stronger than what we had leashed, unleashed on Hiroshima. So this definitely had the attention of beings from all around the cosmos and certainly our own um, solar system. Yeah. And the ones you're mentioning were in Nevada. Yes. So, which is really close to Southern California. Right. <laughs> so the ones you were mentioning were at the Nevada test site. Well, they went, kept doing it. And the things, the thing that, that I find interesting is the people, and I don't did you find this interesting too, that were contacted, worked for McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed Martin? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, it's like the Space Brothers went to the people that were working in aerospace at that time. Well, it, yes, they did. And I have to say, I'm just going to insert right here. When I was looking at that part, reading both of these books, I, I was flashing back on conversations with the beings I've talked about many times that I've had guidance from over the last several decades. And one thing they told us many years ago was that the reason the UFOs started coming and hanging out, particularly in areas where there was military activity, was specifically that. They were very concerned about the weapons we were producing 
and what we were going to be projecting into space. And also how what we were doing here by way of these nuclear tests had been affecting the atmosphere. And this was this is not cool on a cosmic scale. I mean, we think it's all right, but it's not cool. And it does draw attention, especially around any kind of military installation. And so, of course, it would be natural to start contacting people who are in contact with these military industrial firms. Well, the military industrial complex is the whole mystery. Yes. This. And, and, but isn't it interesting that those became the contactees? Now, not Adamski, because Damsky. Yeah. I had his own life, and he was—he was a world. He was a mystic, yeah. yeah. But but George Van Tassel, Daniel Fry was a physicist at White Sands, and then of course the very little known case that thank you for covering it of Orfeo Angelucci. Now yes. Orfeo Angelucci was really an East Coaster. He was from Trenton, New Jersey, and he had trouble with the thunderstorms in Trenton. Had he had electrical um, imbalances, and he moved to California and got a job at Lockheed Martin. And I've driven by that old lock uh, that and now it's a strip mall, but it has an airplane which shows you where <laughs> Lockheed Martin was. And uh, and from that point on, this story is very detailed about contact in Burbank. It is. And so now let's set it up by talking about Adamski first and what happened by way of his contact and some of what he was shown. This is a briefer part of the conversation because as we get into, is it Angelucci or Angelucci? Angelucci. 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 Italian, yeah. Okay, yeah. Or with an F, yes. Yes, or fail Angelucci. We're going to hear really the, I think the book, not only the bulk of the messages, but these are really deep messages and they impact us to this day and beyond. So let's set it up. Adamski was out there and he met with this being. He was out with a bunch of other people in the desert and we have pictures yeah. to cover all of it. George Hunt Williamson and his wife and other people, yes. The book that, that you're, you're, we're going to talk about yeah. is M Michelle uh, uh, and Michelle is French. Mm -hmm. but he lives in Tokyo, and uh, this is a new book. He, his first book was called Visitors Without Passports. Uh, they are here. That was his first book. So I read the first one. This one just came out, and it it actually has, and that's why it's so it's so important. It has a picture of Orthon that's been, you know, uh, it's been uh, enlarged, so the people. Yes. It was really a, a space being. And yeah, yeah we're, and, gonna be, we're gonna go ahead and show all these images and insert them into the video so they're nice and clean so you won't even have to perfect. Them, which will be easier. So he was he this, had, yeah. So he had a, a telescope and so he started uh, photographing these cigar shaped UFOs. And then he got the message to go to Desert Center, which is near Joshua Tree. And that's where he went with these I, I, five or six people. So he wasn't alone. And, they, and what he did was have a, a physical meeting with a physical being who left his footprints. I mean, more than that, I don't know when people say, I don't believe a story, I feel like saying, well, wh why don't you look at the physical traces? Not only do you have witnesses, you have footprints, and George Hout Williamson takes plaster casts, two of them, of the footprints. So the message was, in, in, to make it really clear, just be careful of your nuclear capacities, you people can destroy yourselves, you have a dimensional world, and when you... 
use the nuclear power you've discovered, you can't go backwards and it does affect other dimensions. Yes, I think that's a really important part of the message because we're, in, we're our planet is ensconced in, in materialism, scientific materialism. We don't recognize anything but this dimension. And so we're not seeing the damage, even though we know the damage we can do to our physical bodies, we're learning this, is resonating out into other dimensions, into the etheric dimension and beyond of our bodies. We're not stopping to understand this happens on every single level. And so... I think another thing I found interesting about this is when he went out, he was just looking to capture something in the sky. And this man starts walking to him and he thinks he's a naturalist, which in the day where people kind of hung out in the desert, long flowy hair, you know, jeans. And um, he, he thought he was a rock hound because a lot of people do go there looking for quartz and turquoise and things like that. So he's, this guy's wandering toward him and now he's separated from the group and the other people are, are quite a few yards away, but they can see this stranger walking toward him. And then that's where the story really begins in terms of the transmission he was given, right? And he, had, and yeah. he was using the sun, pointing at the sun and doing circles, concentric circles around it to explain where he was from, right? Yes, and, and the thing is, in those days, most of the contacts were from Venus, so they told them they were from Venus. So then we all get confused because we think there isn't life on Venus, but I talked to Glenn Steckling about this because he is the Adamski, uh, you know, person. The, the, he, is, he was nine years old when Adamski died. His whole family had collected all the Adamski material. He's Adamski. Uh, um, he's the, if you go on internet, all of the Adamski uh, work and all the archives are from Steckling. Yes. He said to me that he taught, his parents had talked to NASA and that NASA admitted they had recalibrated the... Uh, the you know the atmospheric flybys, yeah no, the, the the flyby um yeah, craft and to recalibrate it to make it look like venus was too hot but it, it, the idea that there's no life on venus when you have not only a damsky menger howard menger and these yeah. schools, but uh van tassel saying that they said they were from venus and then over in italy we have Eugenio Siracusa in 1950s saying there that they told them they were from venus and what do you do because they aren't even related they're not no. like they, they didn't talk to no. each a lot of this, and again, we're talking about human-looking people. Uh, every single person that met with these, had these various encounters explains the same thing, that this incredible sense of well-being, warmth, and protection kind of came over them when they were in contact with them. Also, that these people are extraordinarily beautiful, beyond normal human standards. Sometimes a little bit larger eyes, but very beautiful, and they can kind of shift into superhuman form in terms of our clothing, if need be, and such. But the other thing that happened too that was interesting is two military jets flew overhead during this event, right? Event, yes. And another Boeing pilot actually authenticated it later by saying, I witnessed the saucer in this event. I was flying over at the time, right? Yes, and the saucer that, that uh, they're talking about had three balls underneath. Mm -hmm. It's that classic belt saucer. Uh, and there are so many photos uh, of it. And there's also movies of this saucer. So I, I don't think in, back in the 1950s, they were creating CGI and there was no Photoshop. So right. 
what we have to do is look at the value of the story. Right. And that message was very appropriate for us. In addition, what happened, they, they have, uh, we see here the images on the bottom of the shoe, which were supposed to be red. He said, in fact, he indicated, look at my shoe print in the, in it was mushy earth. And it turns out that Williamson always carried a little bit of plaster with him in case they came across any kind of artifacts in the desert. So he had some and they were able to get those impressions. And we can see here, these are not normal shoe prints. <laughs> They're not normal shoe prints. And then later on, was it later on that Adamski met with him again and those strange uh, characters showed up on his film? Yeah, but also Adamski met with them. When I talked to Glenn Steckling, they would come into the house and sit on the couch. Okay. <laughs> Germany, they, they were in the same hotel and rode in the car with Adamski. Yeah. And then Glenn showed me a Polaroid of, uh, a bunch of people listening to a Dempsey's uh, speak in Germany, and he said, one of these people isn't from here. And yeah. it was a, a very <laughs> looking blonde uh, dressed in a suit. Now, the reason why I mentioned suits is because I think they try to mix in, and, and they, uh, there's an overkill there, because Val Thor and the three people in Menger's backyard should not be dressed in suits when when everybody else is very casual it's an orchard it's a summer day and these three people look like they walked off a runway right so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the idea that they were dressed in suits and and that they uh, followed Adamski because Adamski uh, if we go back to his message very powerful because he saw that the royalty of England and if you read uh the Adamski books he also made an appointment with Queen Elizabeth, uh, uh, and and he he just and he and he knew Kennedy, and he met with John Paul uh, with uh, um, sorry with Pope Paul um, I think Pope John the Twenty Third because he was the ecumenical Pope and, and Pope John the Twenty Third we know had a meeting in Castel Gandolfo with the Nordic, so yeah. we have. We have uh, all of these important people, so you can call George Adamski the galactic ambassador. Yes. What he, his message was, was so powerful. And, and to put it easily, to put it easily, if you hear the Adamski tapes, what he says is that in the 50s, we had a choice. We could make money from, um, from, the, from making wars. He said it was wars and reconstruction, wars and reconstruction, so we could go on with our economy based on a war economy, or we could go into outer space, start the space program, like, like now that industry's starting it, where they're selling tickets to regular people, and the space industry would have produced as much an economy as the war industry. We needed to make a choice in the 50s, and you know what choice we made, don't you? Yeah, the one we always make, war. War. The one we're familiar with because the density of the consciousness here, which is going to be addressed when we talk about the next well, Andal Andalucci's, right? Yeah, um, because conversations with economy them. is an economy. It's not, you have to create. But then uh, Adamski also said, if you stick with the war economy, you have to create the wars, which That's is right. what Werner Braun Braun said. Right. He said, you know, right. We have to create the enemies, otherwise, who are you fighting? Uh, so, what, what a sick way of looking at an economy on Earth. But that's basically what we have done. And in those days, we had the choice of getting into a very, very powerful and economic space program. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so just so we have this image here and we kind of look at it, this uh, this writing here showed up on some film of his. I don't think anyone has accurately interpreted it yet. It's a different language, but it's universal symbols of dots and lines and so forth. And also they say wherever there's a three, that has to do with a triune of consciousness or Godhead, no matter where in the universe the language comes from. So that's something to be dealt with by those who can read it or those who can interpret it. Maybe Actually, from there. Actually, Adamski gave um, uh, Orthon the glass plate because in those days the uh, the photographs were done on glass plates, and and uh, he came back with this. Orthon had given it to him, but in the book on Adamski, it shows it that it this same language showed up in Brazil. Yes, contact with people in Brazil. So, and that um, was twelve to fourteen thousand years ago, as I recall. Yeah, those stones have been dated too. So this contact's been going on for a long time, pre-Diluvian times. Yeah, and and if people go into it really uh, very powerfully, they will realize that the Adensky period, the Adensky contacts, are so important for our geopolitical system, but also for our spirituality. Absolutely. So. As we kind of look at that, we've gone through the strange writing, and one of the things is, of course, he had to deal with quite a bit of ridicule. He still is. If you look him up on Wikipedia, people tried to take him down. But having read other books about him as well, his character seemed to be very humble and very solid. Um, he was a mystic, and he was interested in things like thought transference and so forth. And and he, he even taught these things when he was a young man. So he'd always been interested in the mystical, but he was not a showboat. And he had some other kind of interesting features about him. But when he was called out on lying, you're lying about this, he said, I would not do that. If I lie now, basically it lowers my own frequencies and I know that I'm going to be continuing on and returning. And why would I want to do that to myself? And that was one of his arguments for why he would, he not only wasn't lying, he never would lie about such a thing. Yeah, he was trained in India, just like Billy Meyer. I mean, you have to study the background of the, these people. And he was trained in India. He had that that thinking, but he was very, I heard his latest tapes and he was speaking to people in, in, uh, in technology and he was saying how we were missing out on all this amazing technology. So he's, he was very solid. He was very yes. logical. He yes. was much more logical than uh, other people. You know, I mean, he was, he had a very logical way of thinking and, and Regina, he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. Well, and he would challenge people, literally challenge them to take on this information and please disprove it. And nobody took it on. Nobody tried to to do that. So he wasn't just throwing it out there and say, take my word for it. He's saying, analyze it. Look what you can. Uh, look at it any way you can. Disprove it if you can. I'm offering it to you for your own use. I mean, that was his attitude. And he didn't intend to share it to begin with. It was Williamson, right? And then Williamson and Bailey started channeling yes. afterward, you know, and, you know, you always have the main guy and the people who kind of want to be this, want to be the main guy. <laughs> you know, Regina, I'm so glad you said that because even with the Sikh Sopa situation down in, in the Chilka Desert in Peru, you had the main guy and then you had all the guys around him who became, yeah. 
who became contactees. In Italy, all the guys around Eugenio Siracusa became contactees, you know, and and they're all guys, unfortunately. But <laughs> 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 whenever these contacts used to happen, there were people that, that around them, especially if they were spiritual, who also had contacts. It's almost like there was... Uh, they were prepared. In other words, the beings are going to somebody. They don't have to start from scratch. They're prepared. Yes. Okay. So now we're going to bring these stories together because Adamski, Williamson, Bailey, and others attended a UFO conference that was put on by Orfeo, right? Orfeo Angelucci. And this, again, was in Southern... All these cool things. Yogananda was there. There was all this stuff happening in Southern California at the time, which is really fascinating. So they all come together because his contact and Angelucci's contact happened prior to Adamski, again, with these very beautiful-looking beings. So start taking us into the first contact that he had, which was, as I said, May 23rd on Forest Lawn, 1952, six months before Adamski's contact, almost exactly. Yeah, and the thing is, uh, uh, those, uh, the, the conferences that happened were really uh, done by George Van Tassel, or uh, Angelucci is one of those people, but going to what you're asking is when when um, Angelucci moved to Burbank and worked for Lockheed Martin, Yes, he, he, he had this feeling of, of, uh, of there was something else. And so what his contact happened with a real human-looking person that he called Neptune. He didn't know what his real name was. It was a, a, an angelic-looking being, but a Nordic. And uh, not only for Slan, but the Hypernian Bridge, which is uh, it, it is still there now because the video that I'm giving you has me walking the same walk as, as Angelucci did. This being would sit on a concrete block as Angelucci had the feeling. They always have the feeling they should go for a walk, the feeling they should look up. As he's going for a walk at night by himself along the Los Angeles River, which, you know, you can go there right now. And here he is. He sees this being dressed in a spacesuit sitting there. And he says, hello, Orfeo and starts conversations with him. So Feo's taken back uh, by it, and the messages are really powerful. I'm so glad that you can share this, the book with me. It's The Secret of the Saucers. It's also written by uh, Ray Palmer, uh, helped write that with Orfeo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the messages were very powerful, and they were, they were progressive. And he said that in this, he was saying that... Um, because he was sickly by nature, um, they say his defenses were down. He didn't have the energy to try to essentially reject contact and that he had a very sensitive electrical system. As you said, he couldn't be around electrical and thunderstorms and he started feeling these horrible electrical feelings moving through him, making him feel weak. And these always preceded these uh, contacts, right? These particular events. That's really interesting on a scientific level. That's why I, I wonder why people aren't studying this on all different levels, psychological, scientific, and so forth. Yeah, and um, what was amazing is he, he worked in, at, at the Lockheed Martin plant, and he didn't share it at first with his workers. I mean, right. you know, with his wife. 
uh, he would share it with his wife because the contact happened. He said he could walk to where this happened because uh, I, you'll see it in the video yeah. uh, that it was within walking distance of where he lived. And, and that whole area has been built up. I mean, I, I think I sent you a photo of what it used to look like, but that whole area is all condos now. And yeah. But you still walk under the Hypernian Bridge. Yeah, and he started talking. You're right. He didn't want to tell anyone. He was embarrassed to even tell his wife because he thought he was nuts. He thought something something was wrong with him, that he was seeing these things. But as they identified him by name, they started telling him things that were very specific. And I wrote down a couple of them. And one he was talking about in the beginning, when they were first getting his attention, is that the life evolution on Earth is endangered as the enemy prepares in great numbers. Now, this went on to take, I think, a lot of meanings because at the time, communism was on the rise. And it was seen certainly by the people in America, and it would have been by him as well, that this was kind of a dark force. It was a repressive force that took people's sovereignty and, and rights away and where people were spying on each other and the like. So that was part of what they were talking about, as I understand it. What's your understanding of that first contact? Yeah, no, it is, it's political. I mean, it yeah. was political. Uh, it was political because it was a very, uh, it was an era full of turmoil. And then it goes on to spiritual later on, because then, then, then they, they start talking about God and they start talking about, um, you know, that the, they are. And, I, and the only way I can explain, explain it to people is they're a group that have a collective consciousness. In, in, in the, if you were on the planet, you'd say a Christ, Christic message of, you know, love your brother as yourself. A collective consciousness basically means I won't hurt, hurt my neighbor. Right. Well, I'll do what's good for everybody. I mean, even if I have to sacrifice myself, I'll do what's good for everybody. Yes. And as it went on in that that first encounter, as I understand it, uh, they went on to explain, we're like your older brothers and sisters. Yeah. Essentially, it says, each of you, and I love this quote, each of you is infinitely important to us than to your, you are to your own fellow, fellow earthlings because you are not aware of the true mystery of your being. And of course, you know me, you know the origin <laughs> story, you know how that perked me right up. And we're going to get into that in a little bit because it's a story, again, that was validated in my hermetic studies. And I haven't really... I haven't really heard it mentioned much elsewhere. I think if you get into the Urantia work, you start bumping up against it. But um, so that's what they were saying is you don't understand the mystery of your own being. Now, what's that mean to you, Paula? Well, it means that we, first of all, it means in some way they we're connected with these cosmos beings. Yes. Some way. And then the second way is that we don't know what our possibilities are because we're so, we're so grounded. And, and I, you know, this, each person on earth tra uh, or unknown self, which transcends the material world in consciousness and dwells eternally out of time. And that's from the book too. And when I say dwell, when, when they say dwells internally out of time, what they're talking about is that, that we live forever or that we have a consciousness that lives forever and that we are eternal beings. So they're giving him in this book and this book needs to be read all kinds. It's beautiful. Of it's a beautiful yeah. book. Yeah. And, and so that's, you know, it means that we're more than we think we are. And the sad part about it though, is we were given these messages 
and, and we don't listen to them. You know, we were given them through uh, George Van Tassel, through Robert Short, through Howard Menger, through Daniel Fry, through Adamski, and now Orfeo Angelucci, because uh, because I happen to be I, to working on the Giant Rock people, and and we need to go back there. We need to go back to the future. I agree with you. And the messages continue, and they're messages that we still haven't heeded to this day. One of the things, and this is no surprise to anybody watching this, it said, Earth is a kind of purgatory, as it is right now, the way it's turned out, that the hatred and selfishness and cruelty is really what keeps it in these very low, dense frequencies. And it says, humans seem to gain wisdom and spiritual evolution through suffering, which again, my same guides told me this many years ago, they said, because I asked, why is it that it is the way it is? And they said, at this point in time, that is how humans seem to respond. And it seems to me a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are essentially um, afraid of change. Anything that threatens our security, our status quo, we're afraid of. And that can be each other, another culture, um, the ending of a relationship, or whatever it is. And as a result of that, we have to kind of be forced through by one event and one trauma after another into finding our own way spiritually. And it's oftentimes those suffering moments where we make our big breakthroughs. Thoughts on that? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you're right. And, and But it's just like when people say, do you think that the paradigm will ever change? And my answer to them is, oh, my God, I hope a meteor doesn't hit the earth. And then we all we all come together in a kumbaya moment. That's ridiculous. <laughs> no, let's do it before that. <laughs> could, could we make this change without the meteor coming to earth? Or could we make this change without the tsunami? Or can we make this change without the hurricanes? I think that's okay. the point of their message, right? They were trying to say, you don't have to wait for those things to happen. You can to make these changes. Well, let's you and I decide we don't want that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Most of the people watching don't want that anymore either. The, another thing happened too in that, that second contact, this was in kind of a pearly igloo, the inside of a ship that was he was yeah. not on board. And one of the things that was shown to him is he was questioning, well, who is Christ? Of course, this was a dominantly Christian culture in the day. And so he's in his own mind telepathically, he's just wondering, well, who was the being Christ? And telepathically, they answered him and said, Christ is an infinite entity of the Son. And that's just the, what we know as Jesus Christ is simply one iteration of that. And he was using that as an example that humans too are immortal. But this is this particular being, and if you look at it in the hermetic terms, um, this particular being known as Jesus Christ was also known as Horus and under many, many other names throughout history, when they were changing times they had and a new message needed to be seated among humanity. So he described he was a massive eternal entity of the sun, like the sun of the sun, right? Yes, exactly. And that was mentioned uh, many times in the book. And the whole idea of the sun that we're related to the sun, and the sun gives us energy, and of course we know it gives crafts energy, because yes. there's so many UFOs around the sun, is something that people should study on their own. And yes. I heard, and, and you know, I was friends with Desmond Leslie, who wrote, uh, you know, uh, the books on Adamski, 
um, uh, inside the flying saucers and so forth. And he told me uh, and Colonel Corso when we were in Italy that Adamski, instead of an umbilical cord, had a huge sun sign. Yes, and, and, he, didn't have a, he didn't have a belly button. No, but he had this sign like with all these rays of the sun. And I'm wondering if there is a cult of the sun or some kind of, of uh, uh, you know, ideology around sun worship. And of course, you mentioned Egypt. Of course. And in the Hermetic uh, text, it will say that there are those who are of the realm of the sun who are here to help those on earth find their way back into this realm, because that's the next realm that goes to where these beings are, which is the realm of living and learning beyond suffering. And this is a different density altogether. And he talks about that. He, he Basically, he was told that your evolution as a species is to remember this immortal aspect of self and to begin blending the two together consciously and live that way in this dense reality of earth life, right? If we all did that, you know, we would be, most of us would be rising, raising our consciousness and getting into that collective consciousness that, you know, where you, you want to be one with everybody, a unity consciousness, which, which we're really far away from right now. Yes, but the numbers are growing. In fact, yesterday I did a meditation for, um, I think it was unified.org, and it was International Peace Day, and, and people were logged in from around the planet. There, there's always a band of people, but the band of people is growing, and that's what they said. Initially, they told him, you're going to be ridiculed. And this, these messages we give you are not going to change the world, but they will affect a narrow band of people deeply. And these people will share this information. And it does start inculcating itself into society at large. And look at how many people believe in UFOs and ET contact now compared to back then, 50, 60 years ago. No comparison. Yeah, and I want to add something, too. It really affected me as a researcher in Nuts and Bolts because it was because of the raising of consciousness and, and my first working with the Giant Rock people that I founded the, the conference in Laughlin, the UFO conference that I put on in November in Laughlin. And this year it's November 2nd through 4th, Starworks USA in Laughlin. And and uh, when I did the first one, it was all on Giant Rock. It was all on the channelings that were done then. It was all on the Space Brothers. And it was all on saying to the people, guess what? We can't, be, uh, we can't waste time. We need to raise our consciousness. We cannot make ufology an entertainment thing with just T-shirts and gadgets and let's have fun. This no. is darn serious. This is a serious situation. We may have a time on the timeline to make that decision again, whether to go out into outer space and meet our cosmic neighbors or to continue the war economy. We may have that coming up. We may have that. Absolutely. And I think one of the problems here with all of it is people, you know, they're constantly looking for some kind of uh, tangible proof. And again, everyone says, well, this is his story. Well, okay, so when he's on board this ship, this, this like pearl igloo, he picks up this little piece of metal on the ground that seemed to morph and almost dissipate in his hands, but it left a mark on his body, which was the symbol of the hydrogen atom, right? Yes. And so that that remained on him, right? Yes. Well, at the same time, he goes back to Lockheed Martin and he he's told 
you need to share this. You're, we've shared this with you so you can share it with others, but you have to walk your own path and make your own decisions. He goes back and starts sharing this finally with his co-workers because he's, he's going to write He's going to write a paper on it, right? right? And everybody's deriding him, laughing at him. His wife is being made fun of at her job at the diner. His sons are being made fun of. He's making everyone's life miserable by sharing this. But what I found interesting is when he was at Lockheed Martin, at certain days, they would be out, outdoors, and they would have craft appear. This happened yes. a lot. Where the buddies that are laughing at him are seeing spacecraft appear overhead, and they're just like, and they still are having a hard time believing it, right? Yeah, well, it's not their that. paradigm. I mean, in those days, it's not in their paradigm. But yeah, it's <laughs> not amazing that, that the beings would support him. It really is. And they supported him in every way to help him understand we're with you and help other people understand the man's not crazy. He's telling you the truth. One time, one of the guys, I was reading this, was... Uh, really poking hard fun at him. And he said, well, why isn't there any proof then? And just as he said that, there was a loud bang in the building as they were putting, they were working on some piece in the building of equipment, a loud bang. And all of a sudden his finger starts developing this dime-sized burning disc that turned gray, again, of the hydrogen atom showing up right in front of these people. They still wouldn't believe me. That's <laughs> weird. You know, uh, the study of ufology in general includes the paranormal. When I was doing the um, this, the uh, work of Giant Rock, and I took everybody there, and uh, my telephone um, called David Garcia's telephone 17 times. Oh, and my God. He said, what in the world? Your phone is, why'd you call me 17? I said, I didn't call you at all. I don't know what's happening. And we had very paranormal things happening when we were doing the filming because we do do filming at Giant Rock. And we started recording all the paranormal activities, like the phones calling, uh, you know, without us dialing. And I think that's their way of interfering in a, you know, not a scary way, but a very paranormal way to say, we are watching you. We know what you're doing. And uh, it's their way that is is non-threatening either because they're not going to come down here and stand and watch over you or do anything that's going to cause them harm, especially with our attitude towards uh, ETs now and uh, and craft. And, of course, my conclusion, and i got to add this, is that they left. In the, 19, the late 1950s, no more Space Brothers. They left because they went to Latin America. The United States government in general was interested in the stories, but they're more interested in the propulsion system of the craft. Right. So when... When they, they couldn't wait to get the contactees to tell them how the craft worked and so forth, the being said, they're not listening. All they care about is the craft and how they can use, because even Colonel Corso said that the technology that he uh, was working on was used for weapons of war. It right. was used for war technology. So if our mentality is war technology, why in the world would they want to come back? Absolutely. Um, they, we were not getting the messages. And they were, it's not like, as you said, they were delivered through many, many people throughout the ages, and we weren't getting them, including the being called 
Horus or the one that showed up as many, many famous uh, mystics, prophets and such throughout history, didn't, we didn't embrace those messages either and basically still aren't. So I, I agree. Why would they stick around? Would they stick in South around? America, they're heeding the messages. They're listening to the messages there. You know, they have so much more sophisticated culture around this in South America and Mexico. Yeah, and it's a hard connection because yeah. what, when, when Neptune is sitting there uh, on the, next to the Los Angeles River talking, it's a heart-to-heart. Heart. I mean, he's come down in a physical form to talk to another guy. And heart-to-heart. Right. Heart. And we don't do heart-to-heart heart very well here, where if a spaceman walks up to somebody who's tilling a field, the guy that's tilling the field, you know, that's – uh, the farmer is going to say, hi, can I help you? Or can, you know, hello. He's not going to say, uh, he's not going to react the way we react. Right, exactly. Well, okay, so as as he goes on, there, the, the, he contacted him again in the bus station when he was going to meet his family one day. And now he looks like a full-on person, you know, like, you know, he's got a hat on and all of this and, you know, Orfeo was kind of shocked to see him at the bus station. And the messages continue. But what happened was shortly after that, then he lost basically seven days of consciousness and memory. His body went to work. He went home. It, everyone kept saying, what's wrong with you? You don't look right. You look pale. He was weak. He just kept wanting to sleep. And this went on for a week, and he didn't know what was going on with him. Pick the story up there. Okay, well, what was the problem was they took him away to show them their world. And, and they couldn't do it. And, and the reason why this is so fascinating is this is exactly what happened to uh, Veronica Paz Wells in South America. They, they took her away to Apo to another world to show her how they live, but they, it only lasted five minutes. In other words, you can't be, as a human being, shocked into being taken away for seven days and shown another world. They have to do it a different way. And, um, and what you have to look at is there's no such thing as time. Right. There's no such thing. What you're doing is, is dimensionally talking about uh, uh, dealing with this. They have technologies for this. And their yeah. technology said, what would be the least harmful way of letting uh, Orfeo know how we live, uh, how we, uh, you know, survive, what our th- thoughts are, what how we... Uh, have formed a community, and the only way they could do it was that way, which takes the consciousness out of the body. Right. And you just become a robot and you go to work. But isn't it wonderful? He remembered those seven days. Yes, absolutely. He wrote it in the book. So somewhere in his brain or somewhere in his awareness, he was able to give us what happened. Uh, which was, to me, really the most profound part of the story. And again, uh, there's cross-validation for this in the Hermetic teachings, which I had read about not even that long ago. And I thought, isn't this interesting that this little man all by himself is being shown all of these things that he was able to bring back forward. And one of them was a really, I mean, this could go so deep, we could talk for hours, right? About the subject of a planet, a once very, very bright planet that existed between Mars and Jupiter in our solar system, which, like I said, I'd been reading about just about a month ago, and that the name of the planet was Lucifer. And it was the least material and the brightest planet of all. It was called the shining morning star, right? Right, exactly. It was destroyed 
by an asteroid. And then he was shown repeatedly, and I'm going to have you pick this up, visions where cosmically you'd see a planetoid or a planet, and then you would see incoming comets or asteroids, and you would see an explosion where it would no longer, it would no longer exist. Other times you'd see they would come in and something else would come in and destroy the asteroid before it could reach the planet. You pick up on this and then we'll finish that part of the story. Okay, well, the whole word Lucifer means light. So then we have to look at Lucifer the way the church interpreted it, Mm -hmm. Lucifer the way this is interpreted it, a being of light uh, there. And then the idea that... um, I think you want me to go to the fact that this could happen to Earth, but it has been averted several times. It and has, yes, it and they has. showed him the date, right? 1986. Well, what happened in 86? That was Haley's Comet. I know, and, and, and I've seen footage of Turk in Turkey of a meteor coming in, and, and it's famous. They can go to YouTube and look at it. And, and a UFO just coming and shattering the meteor so that it doesn't, um, you know, destroy all entire cities and, and, and loss of life. This idea of trying to give uh, humanity a second chance is very generous. And, well, and, and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what are they going to just say, give up on these people? Do you understand why they don't give up? And then we're not their responsibility, but they all take us on as a responsibility because of what happened. And this is, if people go to my site and then they see down below at your StarWorks USA Congress, I talked about the origins of the human species. This is looking more and more plausible with all the evidence I come across as the decades go on, that we're a unique and different species that is not aware of our true nature. This is really serious and other people other from other places have great compassion that we're essentially beautiful a very spiritually advanced um, creative intelligent beings at the core that are melded into this earthly dense dynamic where time exists as a result of density and that means frustration and anger and everything else that time brings to our our uh, feet but what they said about that was that the planet Lucifer, because Lucifer himself and his followers had started trying to control things, had gone, had really started going lower on a consciousness scale themselves. This planet was dissolved, a piece of it still exists, but that the beings still had to find a host home. We have to remember, in the cosmos, all of the planets have their own domain. Lucifer's domain was the planet of Lucifer. We have every single planet has its own master teacher, a ruler of that planet, all of which we're interfacing with moment to moment by way of our consciousness and the teachings and the possibilities that are always coming in. So with this being having a lowered state of consciousness, a lot of those beings that occupied that planet did come to earth and started inhabiting these animal bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. <laughs> um, that was where the consciousness, I think, where it may have been scattered before, actually became lowered. The consciousness became lowered. And well, the vibration it, it became lowered. Yes. So it's a, it's a struggle to get over that. It's a huge struggle to get over it. And I think one of the things that 
that really struck me. There's a there was another saying here um, that I that I um, kind of here it is. Okay, so when he was shown this and shown what happened to the beings from that other planet that landed here on Earth, he said, and I have a question following this. He said, then all of the people on Earth have fallen from this former high state? And he said, no. Uh, Neptune said, no. But vast numbers of Earthlings are former Luciferians. About the others, we'll explain that to you later. The revelation, when it comes, will explain many of the enigmas on your planet. Now, I didn't see the follow-up explanation for that. And I think I want to know if you ever saw the follow-up explanation for that, because I happen to agree with that. There are so many different kinds of beings on this planet. And it was shown, Orfeo, he was one of those fallen Luciferians. And he cried and he felt so ashamed and guilty that he's trapped in this mire because of his own doings back then. I think I think that that's a theory that's, that's very valid. But I also, when you throw in reincarnation, then, yes. you wonder that, then it gets really, really complicated because yes. that's thinking, okay, so for a bunch of low-density people rocking around here, and we, we're just basically, you can see the world is filled with uh, murder, sex, violence, and crime, it, it is. Then you have these high-density beings that reincarnate. They, are these high-density beings from someplace else that, are, that have the knowledge already that, that can intermarry and intermingle with us? And is that how that we become more than we are? Is it going to be through uh, generations and generations? How, how is, that's a question that I can't answer. How is this going to be accomplished? Because yeah. we're not all low-density beings around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. And, you know, my guides explained uh, many, many times that this planet is seeded with every kind of being. There is no one indigenous to here. The people that came from the Luciferian uh, kind of blowout of their planet, um, many of them are they're beautiful beings. Uh, only the ones that had really fallen into that agenda came into Earth. The rest still exist in the other dimensional field and still are kind of associated with the remnant of that, but they're still of higher consciousness. And many beings from many places of high consciousness choose have chosen to come here and incarnate as human beings and live among people, many, many, and have been all along to help try to continue forwarding the message of, as you said, really simple, brotherly love, sisterly yeah, love. Don't do anything that's going to damage your brother because you're damaging yourself. And 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 try to do what's good for everybody. If That is basically the, the second commandment in the Bible of Christ. I mean, he said, love God, and then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But it seems... It seems simple, but if you really did that, if you really wouldn't hurt somebody uh, and you wouldn't go after somebody and you uh, and you thought of a unity kind of consciousness, we would never have the the problems we have. It's just so we have free will and we choose number one and number because we think. But the the the, the sad part is you can't take it with you. <laughs> <laughs> You can choose number one, be a millionaire, do everything you want to. But then when you go to die, uh, then you have to look at the legacy that you left to this planet. And I, I, I you know, wonder how dense people are when they don't look at morality is that. You, did you leave it a better place than when you came here? 
or how did you leave this planet? And, you know, I was going to interject a movie because as you're talking, I got all these ideas. It's like I, I'm one of those, uh, you know, random abstract thinkers. Um, I remember the second the day the year stood still with New Reeves and he comes here and he gives up on people. <laughs> He's just... Yeah. You know, the thing lands, he's starting to collect all the fa uh, fauna and flora and, and plants and stuff. And he's he, and he get, takes a look at this mother and the love she has for her child at the very end when she's trying to save her little boy. And he changes his mind because he says the power of love and emotions will save this planet, gets back on the spaceship. And he sees, he gets kind of an illumination watching the, the love of mother and child. And so in the end, there are enormous acts of love that I think the beings are looking at. But it, or, and whether you look at it as, as, you know, a soldier that'll give his life for somebody or, you know, people, you know, that'll save other people and, and fires and disasters. Human beings have the capacity to show enormous, enormous signs of love. And maybe, and then everybody, and I'm going to say it again, everybody has that kumbaya moment. It's like, it's one minute, you know, we all come together. It's, and hopefully, Regina, you and I are on the same page. It's not a tragedy. Um, but I think that you and I and a lot of other people in the media are trying to show more the similarities than the differences. Absolutely, Paula. You know, and it, these stories all happened in America 50, 60 years ago. I think it's fair to say we're talking about it now because we didn't get the message then. And there is time. I mean, you always have to look at whatever time means in this dimension because there's resistance to time here. And there's a possibility that there are windows, like you said, where we have a chance to learn, we have a chance to grow. And if we just don't meet it, you know, something happens. Cataclysms happen. All kinds of things happen. And we create it. And we create it. We created it. it. I mean, it doesn't yes. come from, from out there. It's our energy. Absolutely. I want to say one more thing because it's so important to me. You're going to give a link to the film that was done. And it was done with a collaborator named Bill Crowley, who was amazing. He works in aerospace, and, and I need a Mulder. I, I mean, if I played the Scully, I need a Mulder. And he did an amazing job. But the video was made by a 15-year-old girl. Uh, the video was made by uh, Sidra Sandowski, age 15, who lives in Hedinger, North Dakota. And she, in that video, with all the, you know, the Star Wars words and uh, gluing together our telephone, our cell phone video along the Los Angeles River, is made by a 15-year-old. Love it. <laughs> I love oh, it. Oh, my God. This girl is making a, <laughs> a video of Orfeo Angelucci. And in the process, she has to learn about him. She had to read about him. She had to shove him in. She had to put his book in there. She... Here's a 15-year-old from, uh, you know, uh, from uh, North Dakota who's taken this on. So I'm going, okay, well, you know, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. <laughs> I'm, with you. I'm an optimist, and I do believe it. I mean, more and more people are starting to wake up with a cleaner heart day in and day out. This is happening. We're starting to understand that the kind of barbarism we've been displaying isn't working. And even if you still have a faction that's going to buy into it, more and more people are really shifting to the other side. And that was really part of the message about 1986 when he was shown that an asteroid, um, that a comet of large proportions could hit Earth 
That's when Haley's Comet came along, right? And it didn't. And as my beings have said as well, as long as you keep a continual movement forward in the consciousness of the planet, many events that are lining up on timelines to occur will be averted. Edgar Cayce made um, prophecies about what was going to happen to the world, what it was going to look like through various eruptions. And they said much of that will be averted because of the raising of the consciousness in the lands of the planet. So I think we're on a maybe even a better trajectory than than we think, right? Yeah, and I think a lot more people will get it. Yes. Get it, then you have to change your behavior. So it's exciting, and and I'm so glad we're close friends because I need your your support every once in a while because it's (laughs) going to be better. It's going to be different. We're getting there. (laughs) So Uh, we're doing this thing side by side, Paula. Hey, really quickly before we sign off, I mean, people will be seeing this before um, before your conference. Okay. And then, of course, afterward, if it's already passed, then forget about it. But just really quickly, who else is going to be talking at your event this well, year? Well, you, you agreed to do next year's on next remote year. viewing. So I've done it a couple times. And I will be next year, too. November 1st, yeah. 2019, on remote viewing. We're going to have Russell Targ and yes. all the remote viewers and so forth. We're going to talk, but we're also going to talk about extrasensory perception, ESP. So that's part of it. But this year, it's the return of the star people because you and I know that the uh, indigenous people, their creation myths all have to do with people from the stars. So that is very much related to what we were just talking about. And it's Native American and I have Clifford Mahoudi, the Navajo Rangers. I have Emery Smith from Gaia. I also have, uh, who's going to talk about this by the way. And then I have Danny Sheehan, who for me is a hero. Uh, you've interviewed him before. He is the counsel for the Lakota, and he just won the case for Chase Iron Eyes to be released. And th- these are things that are very, very important. So we're going to study the Native American cultures, the stories, and we have it's going to be a lot of fun too because we have uh, a lot of musicians, Native American musicians coming, yeah. and we're going to talk UFOs. I mean, Grant Cameron's going to be there too, and so so many. It's November 2nd through 4th, and it's at the Aquarius Hotel, which is very reasonable in Laughlin, Nevada, and hope to see you there. And, you know, and also hope that people read the books we just mentioned, because read for yourself from the source people. Yes. What went on in the 50s and 60s? Oh, and some of the information given by both of these men, Adamski was given amazing information about how the technology works with craft of such an advanced order and how it works within the cosmic energy streams and such. There's a lot of really beautiful information in there besides the messages about our our human capacities to rejoin with our immortal selves. So on that note, Paula, thank you so much. I'm going to be seeing you soon in Boulder. And uh, I won't talk about it now, but we have a very special project lined up between us if another little thing comes together. (laughs) And I will be talking about it soon because it's crazy. We're going to be doing some investigative reporting in Europe next year, May of 2019. So well, thank you, and thank you for this conversation. It's been really uplifting for me. <laughs> it's paulaharris.com, right? 
PaulaHarris.com and the other one is StarWorksUSA.com. Yes. And if you want to take a look at any of these particular books and a lot of Paula's other work, she's written a lot of books. She's done some amazing articles, video and so forth. Again, just go to PaulaHarris.com. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>